Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tom Hartman, Al Franken, Counterspin, and Radio Nation. Welcome back. Nine minutes before the hour. 38.2 million people, according to the Wall Street Journal, which is citing the U.S. Department of Agriculture, experienced food insecurity. 13.9 million children. 13.5 million households. 11.9% of U.S. households, that's more than one out of every 10 households in the United States, quote, were uncertain they could afford to feed their families at some point during the year 2004, the last year for which statistics are available. About a third of these said about at least one household member went hungry at least sometime during the year because the family couldn't afford enough food. This in the United States of America. Congress, by the way, just gave themselves a little more than a $3,000 a year pay raise. One of the teachers in one of the schools where they serve school lunches says, on, this is from the Wall Street Journal article, on Friday at lunch I see a kind of panic in some children that I didn't see before. They eat as much as they can, says Kim Matthews, youth service coordinator at the Chapel Hill, Texas, school district. Then on Monday at breakfast, they not only eat the food on their tray, but the food on the trays of the five kids next to them. There's a whole article about what they call backpackers, kids who are smuggling food out of school because it's the only source of food in their lives. Because their family doesn't have enough money to buy food. Texas, by the way. The highest percentage of households that have difficulty feeding their families, 16.4%. What is that? About That's about one in seven, more or less. One in seven families in Texas is experiencing hunger in the United States of America. What have we come to? And poverty is increasing in the United States. And you get these cons on and they say, well, you know, Bill Clinton ended welfare as we know it. Thanks a lot, Bill. Well, you know, poverty, hunger did go down. Well, yeah, the economy went up. But now that the economy is going back down, poverty and hunger are going back up again. And there's no infrastructure to deal with it. There's no programs to deal with it. There's a... And how are we to be judged as a nation and as a people? frankly, in my opinion, by how we treat the least among us. Here we have literally hungry children, 13.9 million hungry children. We're not talking, you know, hey, they're not eating the very best food. We're talking real, actual hunger in the United States. And this, these are not, by the way... Uh, You know, the people in the shadows, like the Republicans like to refer to. This is not illegal immigration populations. These are this. This cuts right across all racial lines. This the the the, geographic lines. This is just plain old-fashioned poverty. The result of our jobs being shipped overseas because of our these insane trade policies, and the jobs that are left, the the labor force being diluted to the point where. Uh, and my brother made a living as a roofer for years and years. He had a good union job as a roofer, as a carpenter. Put two of his kids through college as a roofer. He, he can't get a job as a roofer any longer. They're just not there. Not a union job anyway. Not a job that he could, that he could support his family with.
is understanding mobility in America, and, and, and you wrote it, right, Tom? That's right. Okay, and you're an economist. At American University. Yeah, and, and so this is uh, like your... This is like science. It's like a, a, economic science. Well, I like to think so. I take the the responsibility of getting the right conclusions from the data pretty seriously. Okay, and and scientists really should be kind of be able to do this, right? <laughs> I mean, that's part of the American dream, I think. Well, so far nobody has threatened me over my conclusions. Yeah, well, uh, we'll play Rush Limbaugh a little bit later, and uh, his reaction is pretty pretty hysterical. Um, the conclusions that, that uh, you draw seem to be that uh, there's less economic mobility than many people might think in this country. I think that's right. I mean, if you, if you describe the American dream as the notion that anyone can be president or anyone can get rich, uh, I'm not saying that uh, it's not impossible, but I'm saying that the odds of moving from the bottom of the income distribution, if your parents were there, to the top of the income distribution as an adult are a lot lower than people think. And one way of measuring that is by saying that uh, children from low-income families turn out to have about a 1% chance of reaching the top 5%. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you were born there, you have about a 22% chance. So sort of a 20 to 1 advantage if you're born rich than if you're not. A 22 to 1, yeah. Technically. Uh, Derek, uh, you, you are at the Center for American Progress, and you head up a, um, a, a Study, or not a study, but something on, on, on mobility, right? Yeah, it's the um, Economic Mobility Program, which is a new initiative of the center. And we decided to start that because there was this notion, there's this in American society of mobility being important, opportunity being important. And we wanted to, one, study it to see is opportunity being equitably shared and two, if it's not, what are ways in which policymakers can make adjustments so that it is equitably shared? And I think Tom's report has, was excellent because it pointed out some of the areas we could focus on that would um, lead to greater mobility for those families who don't have it, which are traditionally low- and middle-income families. And, and it really establishes that the idea that there is equal opportunity in America for everyone is kind of a joke. Well, I wouldn't call it a joke. I mean, it's too it's some serious business, and I wouldn't want to joke about it. No, but, but I mean, the idea that everybody has an equal chance is just not true. No, of course not. And I think it's important for people to realize that many of the reasons that people are rich are because they were born to high-income parents. And it's important to just be honest about that. And, you know, it's like the guy who's born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. You know, it's just not fair. Bush was born on third base and thought he hit a homer. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, let, let's talk about what what these factors are. For example, I'll I'll, um, I'll take my kids, okay? And uh, my kids, uh, I did very well as a comedian, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so I was able to provide my kids with great oppor educational opportunities, and they went to terrific universities. Uh, you know, they're they're going to be. I just feel like they're going to be fine. Now I don't know how my daughter is teaching third grade now. She doesn't make a fortune doing that, <laughs> you know. And I don't know what economic class she's going to grow up in, but she's going to be fine. And my son is going to be fine. He's an engineer, and he's going to be fine. But she teaches third grade to kids in the Bronx who aren't going to be fine. That's right. Whose parents, whose parents literally are well. They're not both there, and who are literally homeless. And she has kids that are in shelters, and kids who have, um, who just will never get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and, and, and what's the important, I mean, the importance of that is, is that I, I know one thing is that we, we see a wider gap, right, in income and in wealth in this country now. But people say, well, that's okay if there's mobility. That's right. And what this report shows is that while we have growing inequality, it's, you know, at near record levels, we also have no mobility. So the kids in the Bronx, they're going to be stuck in that situation, or the, the odds are they will be stuck the in the situation. No, some of them will get out, but the odds are they'll be stuck in the situation. Their kids could be too. The point of it all, though, is the American dream is the idea that the, we don't believe that's right. We believe there should be equal opportunity. That's what Americans believe. So if we 
if, if the research and the science shows that that's not happening, we have to take action to make that promise, make that that um, aspiration true. And that requires things like focusing on education. I mean, I think that's and, one of the leading factors. And spreading educational opportunity among all different groups. Right. Uh, for example, I mean, a lot of education now is based on the property taxes in your your community. Well, that's one of the big problems. You couldn't design a worse system for perpetuating uh, uh, income disparities than uh, tying the funding of uh, education to local property values. It's about the worst way you could do it. But I don't think that's as, as important as it used to be because a lot of states uh, take steps to equalize funding across uh, districts. And within a district like in D.C., there's no such uh, disparity because it's, the property taxes are pooled. And in fact, more money is sent to the schools with uh, more students in poverty. So it's, though resources for education are clearly important, uh, figuring out how to deliver better education with the dollars that we do spend is also important. And that's what I don't find in the uh, No Child Left Behind Act. There's a lot of incentives. We'll take away your money if you don't raise test scores. We'll give you more money if you do. But there's no mechanism in there to show how a school should be better managed. You think about whether that is making the Washington, D.C. schools any better managed. I don't, I don't really see it mm-hmm. happening. You also um, made a point earlier that I wanted to comment on. You know, the fact that you rightly assume that your parent, that your kids will be fine, that they'll do okay, um, is partly uh, because you're white. And if you talk to a black parent of the same income class as yours, they would be reasonably confident that their kids would be okay. But they're a lot more worried about it than uh, than you are. So at, mm-hmm. any, at, any, at any given income level. Parents have a lot more to worry about if they're black in, in terms of keeping their kids on the straight and narrow and, and, and making them, uh, you know, move through the stages of education and get good jobs. And that's one of the points that often gets lost in the mobility debate is that, uh, you know, if you just look at somebody's income position, that doesn't determine their chances necessarily. It all, race also matters, and a lot of other things matter for a whole complex of reasons. So there isn't one number that describes mobility. There's different prospects for upward mobility for different groups of people. And... A lot of people think that we've put the question of race behind us. We don't have any racial disparities to worry about anymore. We've got good schools for people of all colors, but the the numbers don't reflect that. The numbers still show significant disadvantage for black people and Latinos in America. Why why don't we play Rush Limbaugh's reaction to your report when it came out? Uh, This is from um, uh, April 27th of this year. Well, get this. The Center for American Progress, a liberal think tank, released a new study, Understanding Mobility in America. And here's the gist. America may still think of itself as the land of opportunity, but the chances of living a rags-to-riches life are a lot lower than elsewhere in the world. This wacko study claims that 99% of American kids born to poor families will never make it to the wealthiest 5%. Liberals say in that circumstance, abort them. Save them the hassle. Minorities are hardest hit, of course. Only 32% of white families will remain in poverty, but 63% of black families will. So abort them, too, according to the left. You see, my friends, the American dream's a myth. That is, if you buy into the liberal mindset. America in decline is liberalism's central tenant. In war, they see us defeated. They say our institutions and traditions are inherently discriminatory and depressive. Now, President Bush calls this the soft bigotry of low expectations. What it is, is the hard bigotry of liberalism. For generations, liberals have wiped out achievement ideals. They accept low school standards. They disdain the competitive drive. They attack and tax individual achievement. They preach victimhood, and they torpedo aspiration. Yes, somehow, America survives. Not only survives, it prospers. And now they want to convince a prosperous nation that we're losers. Well, they're the losers, folks, and I am sick of their stupid studies trying to convince our kids they have no chance. People outside America risk their lives to access, even illegally, the very real rags-to-riches American dream. You want to fail here? You can. You want to achieve? In America, you can. Black, white, yellow, or purple, unless they abort you. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize that you wrote a pro-abortion study. I, uh, <laughs> as the saying goes, I was not aware of that. Shame on you. Oh, my. Shame, indeed. Oh I mean, my. just because a kid is born in the lowest quartile or, or quintile, I don't think that's a reason to uh, abort him or her. And I don't know why you wrote that. I'll never do it again. God almighty. So what, what's your reaction to to that kind of thing? Uh, Derek? Yeah, you're flabbergasted when you hear that. <laughs> and it's, but what's striking is that 
Um, when when Rush and those folks are on there are out there on their pro you know, end gay marriage crusades. They're talking about the decline of American values and how we're all bad people and we don't, you know, have any morals. And I don't see him saying that, you know, they're being negative. Why are they trying to pull America down? Why are they saying America are evil people? When it suits their purposes, they'll point out whatever their viewpoint is as whether it's a problem. This is a scientific study that basically just describes the situation. (laughs) Right. And, um, you know, Russia's reaction, it's kind of knee-jerk, but the point of the study, I think, is that if we want American optimism to continue, we have to address these problems. Poll after poll is showing that Americans, where before, they still believe in the dream, but whereas before they thought the economic outlook was positive, I think there, the Economist had a recent article that said when Bush took office, 7 out of 10 um, thought the economic prospects looked good. Now, four out of ten do. And study poll after poll show people are becoming more and more pessimistic about their economic futures, and for good reason. They're earning less money, or their, their, their wages aren't going up. Energy costs are skyrocketing. Health is rising. Education's rising. They're having to borrow more than they ever did before to try and make ends meet. And Rush Limbaugh says, if you point out that these middle-class families are struggling, you're un-American. Just like if you criticize the war, you're un-American. And, I mean, it's absurd. And it's also hypocritical because when they want to criticize, they do so. So, Okay. Uh, we're talking to uh, Derek Douglas. That was Derek uh, of the uh, Center for American Progress. And Tom Hertz, uh, associate professor of economics at American University, who has written this uh, study calling for abortion. <laughs> On demand. <laughs> On demand of poor, poor children. My fingers touch upon my lips. It's a morning yearning. It's a morning yearning. Pull the curtain shut, try to keep it dark, but the sun is burning, the sun is burning. It's fairly easy to sell a policy as a success if media hardly ever talk about it, except to refer matter-of-factly to what a success it is. That's rather the treatment that so-called welfare reform has received, with pundits using support for the 1996 elimination of guaranteed federal assistance as a kind of litmus test for reasonableness. The Los Angeles Times' Ron Brownstein, for instance, called it an example of Bill Clinton's, quote, willingness to stare down his own supporters to protect the national interest, close quote. Such congratulation is also a lot easier if media don't look too carefully or too sustainedly at the actual effects of the policy, the impact on people's lives, or compare that reality with the feel-good official rhetoric about independence. With each new development in the rollout of the welfare changes, advocates for aid recipients and the poor have called for that careful examination of the law's fallout. The latest opportunity came when Michael Levitt, secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, issued a clarification of the regulations that our guest says will have a huge impact on the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, though you wouldn't guess it from media's general lack of attention. Neil DeMoss writes regularly on issues of poverty. His article on the new welfare rules appeared in the June 29th Village Voice. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Neil DeMoss. Good to be here as always. Well, we're going to need you to explain briefly what Michael Levitt's recent pronouncements mean concretely, since as far as I could tell, it didn't rate much with major media. Yeah, it's really remarkable that this is something that people in the poverty-watching community and welfare-watching community have been waiting for all spring and summer, and the media seems to just treat it as if it were, well, I mean, they treated it as if it were what Michael Levitt and the Bush administration were claiming it is, which is just a fine-tuning of the law, when in fact it's a dramatic overhaul. Without getting into too much detail, what happened here is that the welfare law that was originally passed in 96 was revised last year. The revision went into effect this year. And one thing that happened is that they tightened up on the requirement that 50% of 
all people receiving welfare had to be in what's called work activities. Okay, in the past, states were allowed if they had dramatically cut their roles to say, okay, the few people who are still left receiving welfare, we don't have to meet that 50% requirement. Mm -hmm. Now, what do work activities mean? That's what Levitt described last week. And he ruled out a huge number of things that states have been allowing people to do while receiving welfare, ruled out any kind of education other than very limited vocational education specifically geared towards, you know, getting a job. So no more doing ESL, no more getting your GED, and certainly no more going to college and trying to get a degree that will enable you to get out of poverty. No more drug and alcohol treatment and treating that as something that's acceptable to do while receiving welfare. Wade Horn, the assistant secretary of HHS, got a lot of media play for saying that you know, welfare recipients have been getting credit for things like bed rest and massage, um, and this is why we needed to crack down. Um, but realistically, these are things, education and, uh, and treatment programs, that people need in order to get out of poverty. Of course, this brings back up the question of whether welfare reform was intended to get people out of poverty or just to get people off of welfare. What coverage, really, concretely, did you see in terms of attention given to the impact of these changes? Yeah, I saw very little. The Times had sort of a pre-story that just, again, cited the uh, official word from Washington that this is not a dramatic overhaul. This is just reiterating what the 96 law was supposed to do. The Washington Post had something the next day that was similar, and there was AP, and, you know, a, a few other things, but it wasn't really investigating what the actual impact was going to be. And, again, this is typical of welfare policy coverage. There's a lot of discussion about what the rules are, but not a lot of discussion of what the effects are on the ground. And I think one of the things that the Bush administration was really allowed in the media to get away with saying unchallenged is that this is just closing loopholes in a law that has been dramatically successful. That's certainly what Levitt and Wade Horn and Robert Rector were saying, whereas in actuality a lot of people who follow this say that to whatever degree the 96 law has been a success or hasn't been a disaster or however you want to put it, is because states were allowed to be flexible and were allowed to put people in education or drug treatment programs if that was what was appropriate. And now this is going to reduce that leeway and create a lot of the dire effects that people were predicting back in 96. And I suppose what's particularly frustrating about the coverage is that because it's shallow, it can also be very cyclical so that we can hear down the road, we can actually see reporting about newly homeless families or people newly in poverty, and it still won't necessarily interfere with the storyline of welfare reform as a success. Yeah, and the problem with poverty coverage is that it is so sporadic. I mean, every paper and every TV station in the country has somebody assigned to cover the stock market, say, but very few people have a reporter whose beat is poverty anymore. You know, there was a time 10, 20 years ago when that might not have been so unusual, but, but certainly not now in the days of staffing cutbacks. That's the first thing to go. So you see something like what happened last year with Hurricane Katrina, where all of a sudden the entire media en masse rediscovered poverty because there it was on TV outside the New Orleans Convention Center, and then forgot about it four weeks later because there was something else to cover. Well, that was going to be one of my questions, um, what your take was on media's sort of rediscovery of poverty. I mean, did you even dare hope at the beginning of it? Oh, I think everybody had hopes. I mean, you had, you know, people on Fox News saying that poverty was a problem, and you had the president saying that poverty was a problem. So you had to think, wow, maybe this is one of those sea change moments where suddenly, you know, America is going to wake up and realize that, hey, just because some people are doing well doesn't mean that you don't still have hundreds of thousands of people who, when a hurricane is bearing down on them, don't have enough money for bus fare out of town. But as we saw, it lasted, you know, maybe two, three, four weeks. And today, even just in terms of poor people from New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. There are still tons of stories out there and still people who are having a hard time getting housing, people who can't afford to get back to New Orleans even if there were housing there for them, and see that kind of coverage in the uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune. You see that in the Houston Chronicle, which are down there and have people affected, but I don't see that you know, on the front pages of the Times or the Post. Thank you very much for joining us. We've been speaking with journalist and author Neil DeMoss. His article on Hurricane Katrina's vanishing victims will appear in the upcoming issue of Fairs Magazine Extra. You can find him on the web at demoss.net. Thanks very much, Neil DeMoss. Sure thing. 
it makes you less sad I will die by your hand Hope you find out what you want Already know what I am And if it makes you less sad We'll start talking again You can tell me how far Already know that I am I'll grow the fundamental concept is the concept of a commons. That thing that we collectively share in common. Now, there are natural commons. I don't know. Do you say commonses? Let's say commons. Uh, we'll make it plural. Any other. There is a natural form of the commons. Yeah, the commons. It's, it's, it's like it's the, origi- the original notion of the commons was the, the Boston, the Boston commons. You know, the park in the middle of town where anybody could could graze their cow. And the natural commons are things like water, for example. When population was fairly, anybody could drill a well or anybody could, you know, stick a pipe or a hose into the nearby stream or just go down and dip in, in, dig in with a a bucket and, and get their water. It was a natural commons. Everybody shared in it. But then as population grew, the natural commons became a regulated commons. It became a commons that we had to collectively take control of. There were pathogens in the water. We decided to chlorinate it so that it would be safe for us. We did, there were some people who didn't have easy access to it, so we built water lines to their house. So those parts of the commons that we agreed that, you know, we're all going to collectively share, we, we distributed it out and we took responsibility for it collectively. And we said, you know, we're all going to pay for this thing. We're going to make this work. We're going to do this collectively. Or like the air, for example, the air that we breathe. As the air that we breathe got more and more cluttered up and crowded and crudded up as a consequence of our behavior, we said, hey, wait a minute, this, this commons, we're going to take control of this. And we're going to make rules about what people can dump into this air because we're all breathing it. Healthcare in the United States for the first hundred or so years of this country's existence, arguably the first 150 years of this country's existence, was a relatively widely available and inexpensive thing. Until the age of antibiotics, which came with World War II, sulfa drugs were invented during World War I, more or less, the 1920s, and uh, penicillin and the modern era of antibiotics came along with World War II in the 1940s. Prior to that time, health care was, by and large, you'd go down to the local pharmacist and say, ah, my back is hurting, oh, here, have, have some... Uh, have some morphine compound or whatever. You know, it's basically, you know, it, the, the, there was the herbalist down the street. There was the doctor around the corner. that you could, you could become a doctor by taking a correspondence course with a matchbook cover up until the 1930s. I mean, it was, it was basically the commons. It was, it was easy to get health care. And as, and as miracle drugs came along, particularly antibiotics, and as, as in Marie Curie, you know, to discovering radium and burning your hands off, and then, and then we go into x-rays, you know, and as medicine became more technological, and as companies figured out more and more ways to make money off it and lock it down, and the doctor's union got, t- you know, t- tightened the thing up, it became more and more expensive, and every other country in the world looked at this and said, you know, this commons of medicine, since we all believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and you can't have life if you're not alive... This commons of the medicine is something that we should all share the responsibility for. We should all share the cost of it, and we should all take care of it and make sure it's available to everybody. And they all put together national health care programs. But we didn't here in the United States, and we're paying for it. We have one, 1.5 million individuals or couples filed for bankruptcy in 2001. Now, of those people, 40, 54.5% of all bankruptcies were caused by illnesses. Of those people who went bankrupt because they got sick, 75% of them had health insurance at the beginning of their illness. 62% had health insurance all through their illness. High medical bills contributed to 60% of medical bankruptcies. Drug costs, the major contributor, 48%. We have a system that is totally broken and totally out of control. And it's just time for us to do something about it, my friends. Time for us to get active. Down the botany den, the barn crashes brown from the autumn spate. The spreading hazels rustle as they bend and sway as they laden wait. 
My fathers, they have walked this road And now I know Yes, and didn't they know There is no great and heavy load And now I know Yes, and didn't they know Fa-la-la-la-la-la Stand on solid ground On solid ground heard a lot of talk recently about Social Security, which was a wonderful program that ensured that people wouldn't have to die homeless. But the two occupations that were left out of Social Security were domestic workers and farm workers, and those were the occupations that were mostly held by African Americans and Latinos. In fact, in the South, 85% of the jobs held by African American women were as domestic workers. Mm. Um, now, Meju, let me just ask you to back up for a minute, and not because studying the impact of racial discrimination isn't in itself important, but I want you to talk for a moment about why this history and this information is important to everybody, not just for us to, you know, beat ourselves over the back of how bad racism is, is and has always been in our society, but to talk about the impacts on our reality today and the options we're given. And one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, you compare the New Deal period to the Great Society period, and there's this suspicion I've been harboring for a long time, which is, you know, that Americans were allowed to feel comfortable about social programs when they mostly benefited uh, white people. But when post-civil rights movement, post-women's movement, you had the idea, the prospect of social programs that might benefit those other types of people, then they were easy to defeat. So I'm thinking, you know, go back to the 60s and there was talk of um, minimum income supports for poor people. There was talk of national health care. There was talk of child care on the state. There was talk of elder care that was reliable for everybody. There was talk of really reinvesting in public schools. And you can't help but get the feeling that these were easier to defeat these ideas because those with some power already in the system, disproportionately white people, were led to believe that these programs would just be taking money out of their pockets and putting it in the pockets of these other people who we know and we've characterized, we've framed as irresponsible kind of um, uh, bilkas of the state. Well, actually, in the 60s, there was widespread public support for those programs by whites and blacks alike. Uh, The pictures of poverty that Robert Kennedy brought back from his trip to the South, for example, children that were malnourished with extended bellies, the kind that we see in pictures now only of the third world, people were just shocked at that, and they did feel that we as a country owed it to everyone to give them an equal opportunity so that we didn't have that negative feeling until more the 70s and 80s, really starting in the 70s with the Reagan years. With the, the Heritage Foundation years. Exactly. So a lot of this was really trumped up, I think that the American people and a lot of white people would have continued to support it, knowing that disproportionate poverty in communities of color was a social problem, not an individual problem. Mm. But starting with Reagan, he began to portray it as an individual problem. Now, no problem is a social problem. Every problem is an individual problem. Exactly. And there are only individual solutions. So part of what we feel in this book is that we've been asking the wrong question, and it has really been the right wing that has posed the question. And the question is, what are those poor people doing wrong that keeps them poor? So we hear things like, well, we need to give them a marriage incentive. It's The problem is that they're not getting married or they're having too many babies, so we have to do blah blah So what's the right question? So the, the real question is, what have we done as a society that has kept them in that place of poverty, and what can we do as a society to um, bring them into the economy? And when you ask the question, why does this matter, it certainly matters in that it strengthens our economy as a whole. And I'll just give you another example. The GI Bill, which was one of the most fabulous middle-class building programs this government has ever had, and maybe any country, but we invested millions of dollars in college educations and in low percentage mortgages subsidized by tax dollars for GIs. And unfortunately, black GIs couldn't partake of those 
programs, even though they were eligible, because the government did not come down against discrimination by colleges and by banks and so on. So they just couldn't get into colleges. They couldn't get mortgages. So the disproportionate effect was to benefit whites. But the How dare they then wipe out affirmative action and say we need to have a level playing field? Absolutely. All right, let's take some calls because I could continue this conversation with just you alone indefinitely. (laughs) So let's hear some calls. Uh, Let's hear first from Barbara in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Barbara, line one. Hello. Yes. This is Barbara calling from Madison. Um, I have to say that I really enjoy your show. And when I was, I just came from seeing the inconvenient truth, so I'm kind of emotional. But um, I, uh, what you said resonated so much with me, and as I said before, I um, I had gotten divorced, and it reduced my income to about 72%. I own a small business, and my business wasn't doing well. I didn't have any income. I didn't have any of my assets. It was suddenly being thrown into a situation where I have seen many – I'm a translator for um, Spanish-speaking people in a lot of low-income people just thrown into that situation overnight. And suddenly I began to realize that the only way that you can get ahead in this country is if you have income and assets. And if you have no assets and you have to live off your income, you're stuck in this black hole. And to get out of it, something has to happen. And I've been watching while the Bush administration is here for them undoing the New Deal, taking away all of the ways that people can build wealth. Only the wealthy can build wealth. My sister and my brother are both millionaires. My other sister and I are um, middle-class people. And to watch the differences in our lives Mm. and to watch their understanding of what was going on compared to my understanding of what was going on, we we live in two different worlds. Mm, Fascinating. Back to you, Meiju. I mean, what a great uh, example of uh, an American story today. Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, many millionaires feel that they did it all by themselves by tugging at their bootstraps. And our caller certainly understands that as a woman, you know, all you've got is your bra strap to tug on it. It's even harder. (laughs) Some of us not even that. (laughs) But, you know, the real story is that it it is not just hard work. It is all kinds of government protection, government handouts. We know about corporate protections. And I think that your caller is really smart to notice that we have been giving incentives to rich people to get richer, for example, by saying you don't have to pay as much taxes on your uh, income from dividends or from capital gains. Those are things that middle class and low income people don't have. And so we don't, we're still paying a higher level of taxes on our work. So our income from working. So this is a country that says we value work, but we're actually valuing much more you know, wealth, and we're giving a a free ride to those who are already wealthy and not doing anything these days to help people get ahead. And we need to go back to some of those kinds of government support. One of the points that you make over and over in the book in an important way, the color of wealth, the story behind the U.S. racial wealth divide, is that you hear a lot in the media these days about increasing incomes among people of color and people of color families, that African-American incomes have gone up by whatever percent, uh, ditto for other um, uh, so-called minority, actually soon majority groups in this country. The point you make is it's not the income that we need to look at if we're talking about where do people stand in relation to one another and fairness in America, it's the wealth. Remind people what's the difference. Sure. I mean, income comes in and it goes out. It's kind of like a stream. It flows in, but if you spend it all, and many people have to if they're quite low income, just on the necessities of life. But wealth is more like a pool or a lake so that you can draw from it when you need to, for example, if there's a medical emergency or if you lose your job. We all would like to have a point in our lives when we can retire without worrying about dying penniless. And we also want to pass a little bit along to our children so that they can get a head start in life. In other words, we all want economic security. Without a certain amount of assets, you don't have that. You're just living day to day. So we say income is about getting by, but it is wealth or assets that helps you get ahead. Mm. What are some of the demands we need to make and and policy solutions that we could get behind? Well, certainly the tax 
cuts have been a total disaster for poor and middle-class people. We need tax dollars in order to pay for the things that we care about. And that's not just infrastructure or safety net programs, but it is investing in asset-building programs such as college education or home mortgages. So we need to tax the rich, first of all. And I think you mentioned in World War II, the top tax rate was 91%, and nobody said, boo, they thought it was fair. So getting the money from where it is is makes perfect sense. And in fact, Bill Gates' father was one of our spokespeople on saving the estate tax. And he said that it should be called a gratitude tax because Billy's children should pay that tax with gratitude because if their father had lived in another country that didn't have the kinds of protections for wealth and for business and for individuals that Billy Jr. benefited from, he could have been just as hardworking, just as entrepreneurial, just as smart, and ended up poor. So we really do need to tax those who have benefited the most, should give back the most in order to create opportunities for others. And this time we should target those dollars to places that have been left out in the past, inner cities and rural areas which were consciously disinvested in. That's where we need to invest money today. Thank you so much for your work. Meiju Louis, and you can find the book The Color of Wealth at the website fareconomy.org. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Here, Dwight Eisenhower talking about how the world at war is not just spending money. We, in a, in a very real sense, we are spending ourselves. See, the thing that Eisenhower understood that most Americans don't understand is that when you build a road, it costs, say, a bill, say you spend a billion dollars building a highway. That highway is going to be there for the next 20, 30, 40 years, and you're going, to, you're going to generate hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of commerce because it can be used. You build a railroad track. You build, a, you build an air traffic control system. You build a bridge. You build a water treatment facility. You build a sewage treatment facility. You build a fire station. You build a police department. You build any of these things, and they are used over and over and over for generations. You build a library. We have libraries that date back to the founding of this country that are still around. But if you build a bomb, when you drop that bomb, that money is gone and it's never going to produce another penny. You build a bullet, and when that bullet is shot, it's, gonna, it's gone and it's never going to produce another penny. You fuel a fighter jet, and when that fighter jet completes its mission, that cost is gone and it's never going to make another penny. Yes, of course we have to have a defense for the United States. But to, to pursue the policies that the Bush administration is pursuing with the war in Iraq and all these other bellicose activities, and Reagan's idea with Star Wars of creating a short-term stimulus of the economy with military spending, because they just happen to have a lot of buddies in the defense industry, is the most destructive way to stimulate the American economy. It doesn't work over the long term. Over the short term, you get a little bounce, but over the long term, it'll destroy the economy. And you end up with more people who are unemployed. You end up with more people who don't have health care. You end up with more people in need. E.J. Montini, a couple of years ago, March 4, 2004, he's a, a, a columnist in the Arizona Republic. And he writes about a column, it's called The Anonymous Voice of America's Unemployed, in his column. And he talks about a woman who called in and left a message on his answering machine. And, and you know, here's the mess. He says, I wish I could share the message. Here it is. E.J. Montini, this off his machine. Um, I'm 43 years old, and I've been working since I was 16. My husband is 45. We've been married 22 years, and we've always worked. Um, a year ago, I lost my job. Six months ago, his job was outsourced to India. We have three children. Um... One that's 18 and um, was, we were going to try to help them get through college. But um, anyway, I just wonder, there's so many of us and people um, that don't seem to notice what's going on. And nobody, you see, I, I read the paper and I don't see a lot of people writing about it. Um, and I know there's a lot of them out there because I talk to my friends every day that I used to work with. 
jobs, and there's no jobs in this country for people that um, have worked all their lives. And, uh, I mean, yesterday I was on the phone sort of looking around for shelters because we've got another two months before we're going to get thrown out of our house. And we were part of that middle class section there. This wasn't, I mean, I never thought this was supposed to happen to us. And I know there's a lot of people out there like us. So anyway, it'd be neat if somebody would write and make the country aware that, uh, I mean, I feel like invisible. You go to the grocery store and it's like, anyway, we're an invisible section, but I think there's like millions of us. So anyway, somebody ought to write about it. And you always write about everything and you make it good. And nobody hears us. So up to respond or forward, press 1. To delete, press star D. And, and uh, E.J. Montini, the Arizona Republic, a brilliant writer. He says, if I could transfer her message to each of you, I would. I'd also send it to Bush and Kerry and every congressman and senator. He says, although she didn't leave a number, I knew when we got, when we got off and my answering machine was listing the options that I wanted to respond to her message. I wanted to forward it. I had no intention of deleting it, and I could not skip it, he says. This is, this is the conservative world. It's the Scrooge and Marley world. It's the world that Charles Dickens wrote about. It's a movie we've seen before. This is the world that the conservatives... Uh, Mr. Scrooge, may I have a lump of coal, please? My fingers are cold. No, you may not. It'll cost an extra pence. You can't have a lump of... What, a lump of... Well, how about health care for my little tiny Tim? He's he's sick. No, you can't have... Are you kidding? I'd have to pay for that. What, are you on health care? Go out and get a second job, a third job, a fourth job. Ah, yes. The wonderful world of conservatives. Thanks for listening, everybody. I just wanted to let you know that the the entire reason that this episode uh, even came into existence is, uh, is entirely based on one email that I received from a listener. And basically, this email was asking if, um, you know, not only if I could do a show on The Invisible Poor, but if I had any suggestions on other podcasts that, that do, you know, top topic matter uh, such as this. And, you know, it made me realize, like, yeah, boy, no wonder they're called The Invisible Poor. Uh, I've never done a show on them. It's never occurred to me to do a show on them. You know, basically, I'm just a, a, a slave to whatever comes down the pike, and I just regurgitate it all. And, and uh, you know, I, I hadn't heard any clips of, of this nature. And, um, and I, you know, apparently when they had come around, they hadn't really grabbed my attention enough to, uh, to, to pull them out of their original shows. And so... Uh, this this email actually came several weeks ago, and so this episode is the culmination of, you know, at least two or three weeks of listening, and, and you know, as I was listening, and I would hear these clips, um, you know, I, the only reason that they got pulled was because of that email that I received, and you know, I thought to myself, had I not gotten that email, these these wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have struck me as an, I mean, not necessarily an important enough issue, but, you know, it just, there's just something about it. It just doesn't grab your attention. So, anyways, this this show, you know, in, in a sense is, is dedicated to that listener. And, um, but, but the, the real reason that I bring up this story is to tell all of you what I told that person when I responded was or is that you really can make a difference by writing letters and I certainly understand that you know that feeling of if I write a person a letter are they really just going to take my advice and run with it you know, no, the answer is no. But 
I just wanted to explain how I reacted to that email, and I did a little bit already, but basically what it made me do was, you know, it put the idea in my head, so when the subject came up again, it kind of caught a little bit, and it, it made me think more about it later, and so whether you be uh, listening, uh, whether, whether you're writing uh, letters to your congressmen and senators, or if there's something that you'd like to hear about on the radio that you think, you know, is a topic that you think doesn't get covered well enough, writing the person a letter isn't going to make them go out and you know, look for stories that you want to hear or anything along those lines. But later on, as, you know, radio hosts, as they go through the news, they get all these stories that they can cover and they have to pick what they're going to talk about. And, you know, they they usually have more to talk about than they have time to talk about. And so things get cut at the last minute and you know it just doesn't make it into the show but if you want to hear these radio shows talk for instance about the invisible poor or the circumstances of you know the effects of uh, you know the destruction of the social safety net and so on and so forth write these shows a letter and it'll just plant that seed and they're not you know don't don't discourage yourself from writing the letter because you think it won't do any good because you think that these people aren't going to take you seriously. It's just going to put the idea in their head. And when it comes up later, they're much more likely to grab onto those stories because they actually got a request for it. And, you know, the, the same goes for, uh, well, I, w- I would hope that the same goes for uh, the... Uh, the Congress, if if that's who you're writing a letter to, of course you're a much smaller voice in that arena, but it's the same idea. You you get your message out, and it it just plants a seed, and you become one voice. And it, you know if if we all become more involved, we are more vocal about what we think and what we want to hear about and what we want to discuss it creates a national discussion and you know the radio converts to all other mediums and it creates a buzz and all of a sudden that's what everybody's talking about at the water cooler the next day so that's my uh my advice for the day and it's just you know everybody can say go write a letter but i just wanted to give you a little bit of uh you know, a little bit of what it's like to be on the receiving end of those letters and and what it means and, and how it actually works. So, just just my perspective anyways. So, if you'd like to contact me, hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. That's it for today. Have a good one, everybody.